And open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this evening. The title, great title, great God, the God of second chances. The God of second chances. And let's begin now with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And it reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I always like to underline things like that. When I go through it, it's a reminder. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it, that is Nineveh, preach to it, to Nineveh, the message that I tell you. So God now gives Jonah his first order since being delivered from the belly of the fish. Right after Jonah repented is when God ordered Jonah's deliverance from the fish and to put Jonah back on land and back to serving God. Repentance on man's part always brings action on God's part. And two times we see this truth clearly in the book of Jonah. And we see it both in Jonah's case here and in Nineveh's case later on. Man can avoid. Man can avoid and solve so many problems in life if he would only repent of his sins. And God is always waiting and excited to bless us. But so often the blessing is blocked by our lack of of repentance. What excitement, and think of it, and what joy Jonah must have had must, must be having, you know, be experiencing after he was, as the Bible says, vomited onto the land in verse 10. I mean, he was finally free from the fish's belly. He could see the beautiful sunlight again, the sun of day. He could smell fresh air again. And I, you know, when I read this, I kind of think, what must have smelled like in the belly of a whale? For three? I mean, it had to have been musty and smelly and well, whatever else you could think of. But man, he must have been out there just so happy to smell fresh air again. He could see the beauty that was around him, you know, and and he had peace. Those three days of trauma and suffering were over for Jonah. So now God gives Jonah the order again, the second time to go to Nineveh and to preach the message that God had for Nineveh. This order to go to Nineveh was at least fourfold in its purpose regarding Jonah. Now, one reason that Jonah is confronted with God's commands so soon after he repented, first of all, is to see if his repentance is for real. So the first thing we see is the significance of testing Jonah's repentance. Because you see, Jonah refused to obey to go to Nineveh when God first commanded him to go. But when he got in a really bad situation, which... We're so much like this. When we get in a really bad situation because of his disobedience, it seems by the way that he was talking that now he really meant business with God about getting right with God. And how sad it is when we have to get into some jam that's really terrible before we say, okay, Lord, I mean business with you. Now, whether Jonah was sincere or not about his repentance won't truly be confirmed by what he says. We've all heard the, the phrase talk is cheap. But now it's how he responds to God's orders again. Will he obey? That's the real test of repentance. It said here again, uh, So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now the very fact that it, that is 
God's word would come a second time to Jonah shows the grace of God, as well as a test of Jonah's uh, repentance. When Jonah rejected the word of God the first time, hey, he did not deserve a second chance. And you know what? Nobody does. God would have been totally justified to totally reject Jonah when he refused God's word the first time. But thankfully, God is a God of great grace, as we know, and great mercy. So Jonah's given the word of God a second time. Jonah's given another opportunity to respond honorably to God's word. And man, we can thank God for second chances. Jonah is not alone when it comes to second chances. And I know I'm here because of a second chance. Where would any of us be today who are rejoicing in the blessings of God if it wasn't for the grace of God that sent the word to us a second time? Maybe even a third, fourth, fifth, or many more times. But think about how many times you heard the word of God, the gospel, before you responded to it, before you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Not too many people are able to say that they received Jesus the very first time that they ever heard the gospel message. I know I didn't. And most people have to hear the gospel over and over again before finally responding, showing just how merciful God is to us. But there needs to be a warning given when it comes to the second chance of grace or the third or fourth or fifth, however it might be. Because there are always those who would misrepresent the grace of God and make it an excuse to be deceitful. They take the gracious second chance and they use it as an excuse for sinning. And their reasoning is that they can go ahead and they can sin because God will forgive them. He'll give them another chance. But those people who think like that, they're only fooling themselves. Because this kind of attitude, attitude is one that, that isn't truly repentant. And you know what? You hear this, this saying over and over, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And he knows if, if you're for real. And if there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. And there's no restoration by God. So, you know, to pervert God's grace this way is to make it uh, justify evil. And it's for sure a way to receive severe judgment. You know, Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through chapter 6, verse 2. And I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. He said, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well then, Paul said, should we keep on sinning so that God can keep on showing us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? God's abounding grace is not a license to sin. In Matthew chapter 1, 21, when the word was given as to what to name Jesus. He said, His name shall be Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins, not in their sins. And some people believe and think because, oh, well, God's forgiven me for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Well, He has. 
if you've recognized that and you confess it and you ask for forgiveness. It doesn't mean because he's forgiven us for all our sins that we can sin all that we want and we're automatically forgiven. We're saved from our sins, not in our sins. That's a big difference. The command that's given to Jonah was an important and a most needed sign of approval by God for Jonah's future service in Nineveh. And just because Noah, I'm sorry, just because Jonah had been previously called to go to Nineveh, that doesn't mean that he can take it for granted that he's still called to go to Nineveh after he first rejected going the first time. Because here's the thing. There are some things that the disobedient person can always take for granted that he's to do. Again, we are, we are to, you know, uh, we, we after, I mean, we're to, you know, go on living upright. We're to carry out the responsibilities that are normally required of us, you know, and to all mankind. But to assume special service, that's another story. So for Jonah to head for Nineveh now that he's back on dry ground, that would be just plain presumption. It's like saying, you know, hey, you know, God wanted me to go to Nineveh. Well, I'm going to go now. Well, wait a minute. You're presuming that God wants you to go. How does he know that God hadn't sent another person to go in his place? So you see, Jonah shouldn't take it for granted that God still wants him to go and that he should stick around waiting for a new order from God for this special assignment. Jonah may feel like he should go to Nineveh and he may feel that he's totally, still totally qualified, but he shouldn't take it for granted that that's true. To presume in service is just another kind of form of rebellion and it's very dangerous too as Israel's history shows us. Because when Israel rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea about going to the land of Canaan, they didn't want to go. They didn't go. Well, they tried a second time after God dealt with them for the rebellion to enter into the land. But when they tried to go in and take the land a second time, uh, God didn't support them going. Numbers 14.44 says this, But they, speaking of Israel, they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. And their presumption, you see, brought disaster upon them. It says, because the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain, they came down and attacked them, that is Israel, and drove them back as far as Hormah. God told them to go into Canaan and take the land the first time. And he was with them. He supported them. But they didn't go. And after God dealt with them, they went the second time. But God wasn't supporting them. You see, the problem with presumption in serving the Lord is a lot more serious than a lot of people think. There are many who take upon themselves service that they're not called to or qualified or disqualified for. And one of the things, an example is, that, and I think, well, I know for sure that you see it in a lot of churches. A pastor is unfaithful to his wife. He commits fornication. And he's found out. And he gets back in the pulpit. I believe with all my heart, and I believe it's biblical because it says he's to be the husband of one wife. You know, he gets remarried. He's got his new wife, and he's back in the pulpit. I believe that that man cannot and should not be in the pastorate again. You see, there are some things, this is what I'm talking about, that we disqualify ourselves for. You know, how can we speak on marriage and, and counsel somebody on marriage about a situation that they're in when you were unable or refused to deal with it, work through it, and do what God wants you to do. And I know that for a fact, 
because when Kathy and I were having problems and we went to marriage counseling, we went before a pastor and he had these pictures on his desk. And here was a picture of a woman and there was a couple of kids on the other side. And Kathy said, oh, is this your family? He goes, yeah. He says, this is, this is, these are my kids. And she says, is that your wife? Well, yeah, this is my, my second wife. She said, I'm done. Because she was coming to, to hear counsel, and yet here was a man who was on his second marriage, and he's going to talk to us. And this is what, what, is, it, what basically is, is we're talking about here, the presumption in serving the Lord. And again, a lot of people take it upon themselves that, that, that they can just go right back to doing what they were doing when they have been disqualified. So they would, in that case, you know, they would go to Nineveh, whether God sent them or not. They would go into the pulpit whether they were qualified or not. They're like the prophets that Jeremiah spoke about in chapter 23, verse 21, who God said this about him. He says, hey, I haven't sent these prophets and yet they run around claiming to speak for me. He says, I haven't given them any message, yet they go on prophesying. These people didn't have a clear call from God. And yet they've taken upon themselves to become a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher or a missionary. Others, even though they've been disqualified by sin, they still continue to pursue church offices, which they are no longer entitled to fill. All presumptuous service is nothing but fleshly pride. And it causes a lot more problems in the church than the act of stubborn refusal to serve the Lord when one is called to do so. Jonah needed to be given the order again by God if he was to go to Nineveh. He can't go to Nineveh just based on, on well, I was you know, called to go there the first time. After he rejected it, he has to have a new call to know that God is in it and that God wants him to still go, especially him. God can send anybody. So Jonah has to know that God wants him to go. So when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, as it says here, the, first, the second time, and he told, uh, told Jonah to go to Nineveh, it gave Jonah the green light to go, for his to go, for, to go like he was called to do the first time. The instruction for Jonah not only told him to preach, all right, it not only told him to preach, but it told him where to preach. It also told him what to preach. God said in verse 2, preach to it, speaking of Nineveh, preach to Nineveh the message, notice, that I tell you. Don't tell them your opinion. Don't tell them what you think you should tell them. Don't tell them what you want to tell them. God says, you tell them what I tell you to tell them. Anybody that's sent by God to preach is under this order. God decides what is to be said. God decides what is to be written. And God is, it decides what to be proclaimed. The message is God's message, not man's. You cannot be a preacher if you don't stick to this great principle about the contents of this message. And it's just as unreasonable and wrong it would be, you know, for a mailman to change the contents of the letter he's delivering, you know, as it is for a preacher to change the contents of the message that God has given him to preach. And the Bible makes it very clear what God's, what, what, what God's men are to proclaim. 2 Timothy 4.2 said, preach the word. Preach the word. And they have to be careful that they don't deviate from any sensitive parts of the word in order to please men and to make it easy for themselves to preach the word. 
They must preach all that God tells them to preach. They must be faithful, like Isaiah says in chapter 21, verse 10, who said, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Jeremiah 26, 2, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah. These were orders to, to Jeremiah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. Tell them all the words that I command you, Jeremiah, to speak to them and do not diminish a word. In other words, don't water it down one bit, Jeremiah. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 27, he says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, not some of God's counsel, but the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. Some ministers who are more interested in pleasing men than God, they tweak their messages to get the approval of the people more than the approval of God. Because of this, there are some things that are obvious, like maybe some pet sins that aren't talked about in the pulpit. Like the things that we watch on TV or at the movie theaters. Or we don't want to talk about divorce. We don't want to talk about homosexuality or social drinking or women choosing careers over their family or abortion, just to name a few. When the preacher starts to talk about these things, he might have to start looking for another job. I don't like using that, another church. Or he may see members of his church leaving. And they might be looking for another church that will satisfy their itching ears. But God's command to Jonah is the same command for preachers today. Deliver the message that I have given you. And if you're going to be a true man or woman of God, you must speak God's truth. Men, their preachers, must preach what God says to preach. He must not change the message to please the crowd. He must not change the message to build a crowd. He must not change the message to keep a crowd. The preacher's primary job is not to build a following, but to deliver God's message. And God will judge every preacher. Not on the basis of how many people he had in the church, not how big the church was or, big, how, or how influential the church was. He's going to judge the preacher on how faithful he was to the message that God gave him to preach. Jonah did have, though, some tremendous results in Nineveh, even though he preached a God-ordered message, which is not usually popular with man. But Jonah's experience was a very special one. In a day of apostasy, the usual experience for those who faithfully declare, declare God's word is, is rejection. Remember, Jeremiah ended up in a pit, and he sunk in the mire as we, you know, ahead in Jeremiah 38. Because he gave the message to the people that God told him to give. He was in jail, he put in a pit, and he sunk in the mire because he spoke God's word. Micaiah was thrown into prison. He was given bread and water because unlike 400 other prophets, he dared to proclaim the message that God gave him to proclaim. Ahab. Uh, this message was to Ahab about the outcome of the coming battle between Assyria and Israel. And if you're going to be a true messenger of God, like these great Bible saints, you have to be prepared to pay a price. You must be determined to be faithful to the message no matter what it is. And you must always preach what God tells you to preach or you'll be a great failure in God's eyes. And it doesn't matter how well respected you might be in man's eyes. Then we see in verse 3, Jonah's response. Jonah's response. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Jonah's response to his renewed orders 
shows his dedication. Here's the second thing that, that Jonah's uh, repentance shows, his dedication. This time it says Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, as he was ordered to do. He failed to do it the first time, he's done it the second time, and it's either dedication or disobedience. There's nothing in between. You know, obeying a little bit, but not all of it, that's still disobedience. It's either dedication or disobedience. And the more that you lack dedication to the will of God, the more disobedient you're going to be. And those who, who show little enthusiasm for the things of God, and they give little priority for serving the Lord, they are simply disobedient people. And their lack of, uh, their lack of dedication speaks loudly that they are disobedient people. When God renewed Jonah's command to go to Nineveh, Jonah didn't sit around. Notice it says he arose. He got up and he took off. He didn't sit around. He didn't wait for a while and then go. When he felt like going, Jonah went right away. There was no delay. No waiting for a more convenient time. Jonah obeyed immediately. And we should all be ready immediately in season and out of season to serve God. Jonah's commission, Jonah's order to go required some hard work. He had to walk all the way to Nineveh, which was about 500 to 600 miles away from Jonah's home. It was a hard journey. But you see, he had a dedicated heart. He wasn't going to hesitate. He wasn't reluctant to serve where a lot of work is involved. He, he wasn't afraid of sweat or getting dirty. He'll work hard. He'll put in long hours. And he'll know what it's like to have a tired, worn-out body at the end of the day. That's the kind of spirit we need in our church servants today. The Apostle Paul's dedication to the Lord man was definitely exemplary when it came to hard work. His work attitude is seen in how often he mentions labor in service. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He said, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. He says, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Second Thessalonians 3.8, Paul said, we worked hard day and night. First Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, I labored more abundantly. Uh, Philippians 2.25, Paul said, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker. We also read in Philippians 4.3, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul said, we labor. We read the word about labor over and over again. Jonah couldn't fulfill his commission if he wasn't a hard worker. And you know what? We can't serve the Lord well if we don't have, again, some hard work in us. We can't be dedicated to God's work and be selfish at the same time. Jonah had to drop whatever he was doing in order to do God's work. And he had to lay aside his own personal plans, his own interests, and put self in a lesser position. It's not about me. It's not me first. And Jesus said that. Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. This simply says that dedication to Jesus Christ means unselfishness. He comes first, which isn't the attitude today. Self is on the throne for a lot of people. 
in many lives. It's my rights. It's my time. It's my interests. It's my concerns. It's my this and it's my that which comes first. Jesus said to a man that, that wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus said to him, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, let me first go home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead, and that's what he was talking about, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another man said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first say goodbye to my family. You see, this attitude will never serve God well. It requires a different spirit other than a selfish spirit to move us to be dedicated to do God's will. When God gave Jonah his renewed commission, again in verse 3, it says, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The standard for measuring the genuineness of his dedication to God is the word. The word of God. That's how we measure our dedication to the Lord. It's based according to the word of God. If what we do isn't according to the word of God, it's not genuine dedication to God. It's disobedience. It might look impressive to others. It might look good to other people. And way too often we judge Christian service based on the, the way the world judges things. We look for things that impress us. We look for things that are impressive to the eyes. Things that impress our flesh. But we don't think about the word of God as being the standard by which we measure the performance. Is it according to God's standard? Is the service biblical? Are the methods, are the things that they do, are they biblical? So if someone in a religious work has become popular and have a large following, they've raised a lot of money, they have a big organization, that might lead us to say, man, that guy's really dedicated to God. But it's none of those things that truly prove their dedication at all. That person could be walking in total disobedience to God. Though, they see, though all of these things are impressive, he could still be walking in total disobedience to God, even though uh, they're doing according to the word of the Lord. They think they're doing according to the word of the Lord. True dedication doesn't promise you'll be rich. It doesn't promise you'll be famous, and it doesn't promise that you'll do great accomplishments in man's eyes. But it does require you to live according to the word of God. And living according to the word of God is what really counts. And that's what God is mostly interested in. He's mostly interested in your response to his word, what, you say to, what he says to you. He's not, you know, so interested in how many things you and I can do that will impress people. Now, the place where Jonah's dedication will be demonstrated the most was in Nineveh. And the scene, the, 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 the background, or the, I should say the scene that Jonah's going to face when he gets to Nineveh, man, it's a scene that won't do anything. It wouldn't be anything to encourage his dedication in doing the will of God. He already knew what he was going to face when he gets there. These are bad people. And he knew that he could probably get killed there. So going there was not something that said, oh, man, I can't wait to get there. 
oh, I just am looking so forward to meeting these people. So there was nothing that he was going to face that would encourage his dedication in doing the will of God. And in chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 2, Nineveh was described by God as a great city. Now here in verse 3, God describes Nineveh as an exceeding great city. But that doesn't have anything to do with goodness. Because it says in an exceeding great city, it doesn't mean anything about their goodness. It had nothing to do with goodness. Just that it was a large area of land. It was exceedingly large is what it's saying. The land area was a three-day journey, which means it was about 60 miles in circumference. 20 miles being considered a day's journey. It was the greatest city in those days for land size. But all of this greatness and all of its other attributes weren't of much value because of the greatness of their sin. Nineveh was great in their craftiness so that God threatened to destroy Nineveh. Now this shows us that the things that communities take pride in the most are usually things that are of little value to that community or any community. The main value and the greatest protection of any community is its spiritual condition. So Jonah, man, he had his work cut out for him. And God is not in the business of giving easy jobs. And duty is seldom, if ever, going to be without difficulty. But what we have to remember is that God never tells us to do something that we can't do. And you know what? And you have to remember that God's commands are his enablements. If God commands me to do something, he's going to enable me to do it. Just like he did with Moses. Remember Moses argued and, and him and hawed and God, I can't do this and I can't speak and I can't this. And, I, and God said, Moses, who made your mouth? I just want a nice warm body. I'll do the rest. God's command is his enablement. Moses, I'll get you through this. Humanly speaking, it doesn't seem as though one man could have such an influence on such a great city as Nineveh in such a short time as Jonah did. Because his message wasn't some three or four page message. It was just one sentence. You've got 40 days to get, basically. And they, they obeyed. So again, you know, you, you would think you'd need a lot of preparation time and speak to these folks a whole bunch of times before they heard what you had to say and before they, they, they heeded the message. But you see, when God is in it, you can expect things to happen. We can expect that to happen because as Jeremiah said, and if, uh, uh, again, he said, there is nothing too hard for God. Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So our text here will encourage us and help us to renew our dedication to doing our, our, our heavenly duty, even though there are a lot of difficulties involved in it. Jonah overcame those huge difficulties of Nineveh. Why? Because God was with him. And remember, Moses it came to that point where he said, God, if you don't go with us, man, we ain't going. We need God to go with us. And if God is with us, hey, he will be, uh, he will be with us if we're doing his will. We can also expect to overcome our personal Ninevehs in our, in our life. We have personal Ninevehs in our own life. And we, can, and we can do what God has commanded us to do. 
Jonah's going to find many distractions in Nineveh that will severely test his dedication. And that is a fact. We are going to, we will run into so many things, so many difficulties, so many distractions when we have determined and made up our mind, I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm not going to say no to you anymore. I'm going forward, God. So you can expect when you make that determination in your mind that you have really uh, uh, upset Satan. And he's going to be there every step of the way. Notice verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice the message. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Plain and simple. This means that he walked a whole day from the outer limits of the city inward. The, outer, the, the other parts of Nineveh would, be, would have been less populated because there were pasture lands and, and other farm fields that would fill that area. But the more Jonah walked inward, the greater the crowdedness of the people would become. And once he got to where he was going, once he got to where there were many people, then he began to preach. And as it reads here, he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, Jonah preached quite a message. And we will see that his message was sincere. Notice so, so few words. And many times, you know, we, when we share with people, we think we've got we to share so much and so much and so many words. But it's, it's also got to be shared with sincerity. If we're, you know, the words are powerful if they're sincere. The shortest prayer was, Lord, save me, by Peter. Lord, save me. Sincere. Sincere. The sincerity of the message is seen in the fact that Jonah cried out, Jonah cried out the message to the people. He didn't hesitate. There was no hesitation. There was no passiveness about Jonah's preaching. He didn't go up and say, hey, guys, you know, God told me to tell you that you got 40 days to clear out of town. Not very convincing. He cried out, listen, you have 40 days until God brings judgment. Sincere, and I'm assuming powerful because God sent him. He had, he had repented in his heart, and he was, he was determined to do what God had told him to do. To preach with sincerity. Hey, you know what? It doesn't mean that, that, that the preacher has to scream at the top of his lungs. And, and we've seen preachers do that. They yell like you're deaf. They scream at the top of their lungs like, the louder I scream, man, the more you're going to repent. Or they pound the pulpit with their Bible. Or they march back and forth in front. You know, I have a book called Lectured to My Students by um, Charles Spurgeon. You know, and in some seminaries, they teach the pastors to do those things, to, to go, you know, and to get down on one knee and, and to, like, just have this. Really, it's, it, and yet, it takes, God's the power. It's the Holy Spirit that, that brings the conviction. It's not how I prance around up here or yell and scream and, and, and pound the pulpit. It's the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so, again, to preach with sincerity doesn't mean that, again, he has to scream or, you know, pound the pulpit or march around in, the, on the, in front of the pulpit. That might be nothing more than the flesh. He might really feel good. Oh, I'm really getting across to these guys. It's showmanship. But again, we're here to preach the gospel, not to bring attention to ourselves. We want the people to hear and to see Jesus through the preaching. So again, all of those, you know, theatrics, it... it, It might be the flesh, it might be showmanship, but sincerity means the preacher must be very serious about what he's saying and say it in a very serious way with conviction. Jonah's preaching was sincere. Jonah's preaching was clear. Another important thing about teaching the Word of God. Jonah wasn't there to impress people with his vocabulary and with his sophisticated ideas. Jonah preached very clearly and very simply. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. You know what? No one would have a problem understanding Jonah's message. You didn't have to be a Bible scholar to know what Jonah was saying. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul said, And my message and my preaching were very plain rather than using clever and persuasive speeches. And we can be thankful that we need to know, what we need to know the most to us is plain and simple words in the Bible. And God will make the message concerning the things that we need to know the most, the most so simple the things that we need to know the most, he'll make them so simple that difficulty in understanding the message will never be a good excuse. The sermon that Jonah preached was humbling. It was humbling. It was sincere. It was clear. And it was humbling. Nineveh was a great city, a big city. And the Ninevites were proud of that. Oh, they were full of pride about the city they lived in. But Jonah had to go there and tell them that they were so bad that they only had 40 days before God would destroy them. So what Jonah's basically doing is he's insulting Nineveh's greatness and was basically treated, uh, treated it with disrespect. Not him, but the word of God. God's word said, hey, you guys are so bad that, that you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. God doesn't think much of your bigness, your greatness. It was a message that could be so very humbling that Jonah could fear for his life. And as today's snowflake climate, that some people would, would say, hey, somebody needs to have a talk with Jonah, man. He, he's a little rough around the edges. Did you hear how he spoke to the people? He better, you know, he needs to tone it down, you know, and not embarrass the people. He'll never get them to see their spiritual need. He'll never get them to repent. Oh, you know, and don't call sin by any names. Let's call them a disease or a habit or, you know, not lust like the Bible says or fornication like, oh, no, that, it's sexual addiction. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, drug abuse. It's not, it, it's, it's a disease, 
Don't call sins by any names that might upset the sinner, Jonah. Make them, make them feel like their sin wasn't, wasn't something bad. It might hurt their feelings. But again, that's the fleshly reasoning of man. It's not the rationale of God. Sinners need to be humbled because no prideful soul will ever bow at the foot of the cross and cry out for salvation. The top of the seven things, the list of sins that God hates, the top is pride. Because pride will keep us out of the kingdom of God. But Jonah's sermon, man, it was a sermon of grace in spite of what it sounds like. Because it came from God. God didn't have to warn them. Because God's grace was manifested through Jonah's sermon. His sermon was a warning to the people. Nineveh heeded that warning and they were spared judgment. Think of it, if there hadn't been any warning, those people would have never repented. And they would have been wiped out. Hey, that's the love of God. That's his mercy. That's his grace. It's not meanness. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. Think of it. God didn't have to give them any time. He could have just destroyed them on the spot without any warning at all. And you see, people usually misjudge preaching against sin. They call it negative preaching, or, 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 and, and they, they condemn all negative preaching. Come on, make the people feel good. They don't see grace in the severe accusations and the warnings of God. But if you don't preach strong messages about the wickedness of sin, to warn people of sin's danger, but, in, but instead you'd rather preach soft, sugar-coated messages, you're not a loving preacher. You're a cruel one. If you're giving God's message as God instructs you to, then you'll find that your messages will fit the occasion, it will fit the audience, and it will fit the times. God doesn't send you to Nineveh to preach messages that aren't needed. God doesn't send letters to the wrong address. God's message wasn't a sweet-sounding sermon. Why? That wouldn't be any help for Nineveh's situation. Jonah wisely used his words that were most fitting to Nineveh's need, to Nineveh's evil. He spoke of Nineveh's evil being overthrown. The word overthrown, it's the same word used to describe the destruction of Sodom. It's a strong word, and it implies the destruction that uh, that would be a miraculous act like the fire and brimstone that came down on Sodom. We live today in a very wicked and apostate time with all of the immorality, the abortion, the increasing plague of homosexuality and divorce and crime and violence, substance abuse, political corruption, and the list goes on. And you'll never be true to God and His Word if you can't preach in our day and seldom condemn evil. With all of the sin abounding all around us, the pulpits of our land, they should be majoring and condemning it, the evils in this this world, and warning of the danger of great judgment because of it. And we mentioned earlier in our study this condemnation and warning about the sin, it must, not be, it must not be watered down. We're not to water down the words of God. We're not to use soft language or it will lose its power. Remember Jeremiah said, and don't diminish a word, or Isaiah did, don't diminish a word. 
And since the message of condemnation is desperately needed, and the one that offers deliverance, it has to be preached fervently and forcefully. And when people oppose strong preaching against sin and oppose the use of strong language and fighting sin, you're more sympathetic toward the sin than you are with holiness. And what did God say? You be holy for I am holy. They might hold position, high positions in the church, but their opposition to opposing sin gives away their real heartfelt things, their real heartfelt sympathies. And it clearly shows that they don't know what's fitting to preach and what's not fitting to preach. God's men must not listen to the critics, not listen to what's popular and what's trendy and what's going on. They must always listen to God if they would be dedicated to preaching messages that are needed and fit the times that we're living in. Father, we thank you so much for, for this beautiful little book, God. So powerful, has so much to say to us, has so much to show us, Lord. Father, we thank you. But Father, may we be Christians as defined by the word of God, biblical Christians, God, not just by title or, or name or or, or whatever we want to call it, God. But biblical Christians, God, that stand upon your word, that do according to your word, God, and that we, we depend upon you, Father. Lord, we need, we need those, those soldiers today, God. It's you first, pointing you to people, a world that's living in dark times and getting darker every day. As we see that day approaching, Jesus standing at the threshold, waiting for the Father to say, Son, go get your bride. So Lord, let us realize how close we are. And let us be looking up, knowing that our redemption is drawing nigh, God. For we know not when that thief, uh, when, the, when, the, 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 when Christ will come. As it says, he will come as a thief in the night. So let us stand watch, Father. Let us be ready. Let us not be caught asleep or without oil in our lamps, God. We thank you, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.